Welcome to BSD Talk number 212. It's Thursday, February 16, 2012. I just have an interview for you today, so here it is. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Justin Sherrill. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. So you, uh, you know, for people that have heard your previous interview, um, you're known at least most to me from the Dragonfly BSD Digest, but you're also with the Dragonfly Project. So could you describe a little bit about what you do with the project? Well, the majority of my work is the digest, for better or for worse. Um, I try to have something every day on there. It's been a long, a long-term complaint, I guess you could say, of mine that there's a lot of neat things that happen in the BSD world, but they all get hidden away on mailing lists, and it's a certain amount of work to get on a mailing list, which is good and bad. I mean, you can use a product like you know, some sort of BSD and not be able to keep track of it. And I'd like to have people be able to see something's going on all the time. If I was a crazier person, I'd do it for all the BSDs, but I don't think there's enough, you know, minutes in the day to read all the stuff that goes on. No, I, I really love the, the digest. It, first of all, it saves me a lot of time because you, <laughs> you go through the effort of reading everything and picking at all the nuggets. And at the same time, of course, it's a lot of other interesting stuff that doesn't even have to do with Dragonfly, just Unix stuff and history and games and everything else. So it's, you know, I recommend it to anyone, regardless of whether or not they use Dragonfly. Yeah, I, I have found that uh, even if I wasn't trying to repurpose this stuff to write things, I'd, I'd do all the reading anyway because it's just in the habit of, you know, hey, what's going on? Hey, this is neat stuff. Now, I, I see on the, on the Digest that um, you've got some stuff that you're working on that's in preparation for a new release of Dragonfly? Yes, the 3.0 release of Dragonfly is coming up. There was some internal discussion over whether this would be the 2.12 release, because 2.10 was the last one, um, or 3.0, but there's been enough changes that this pretty much merits a 3.0 release. The problem is that most of them aren't really uh, user-visible. The big thing is that symmetric multiprocessing is vastly improved the old style of keeping everything under a a token for all multiprocessing activities is pretty much gone. Everything is all under separate private tokens. It makes a huge difference if you're using, say, Postgres or MySQL, but from a a user land interface, it's not terribly clear, unfortunately. Of these non-perhaps user land visible features, are there a set of features that you're using or that, that would impact the way that you use Dragonfly in a, in a positive way? Not for the release. Or at least you can, if, you're, you know, if you're using it now, you can continue using it the same way. It won't, uh, there won't be any surprises other than everything's going to run a lot faster. It's the same as it was before in that uh, if you're coming to, to Dragonfly, you're probably there to use Hammer. Which, incidentally, there's a new version that's starting to get worked on, Hammer 2. It actually just hit the tree a couple days ago. It's not ready for prime time yet, but it's a chunk of work on, well, what did I say it? It's basically the next iteration of the Hammer file system, which I should probably do a little summary for anybody who's familiar with it. It's uh, The Hammer file system is something put together by Matt Dillon that uh, let's, there's a whole bunch of buzzwords to go with it. It's a history-retaining instant file system check 
infinite snapshotting. Essentially, it's everything you get saved. Whenever data hits, it gets saved for as long as you have disk space for it. And uh, you're able to manipulate the, uh, files that are saved historically, um, go back to a certain point in time. I call it the save your bacon file system. So sooner or later, you end up deleting something and saying, oh my god, I really needed to keep that. And instead of shuffling around looking for a backup, if you're lucky, you can simply pull it back off the historical version of the disk, which is always available, depending on how much space you have to save things. Yeah, Hammer so, also does some pretty neat stuff around being able to ship slave copies of a file system across the network and, and all kinds of other nifty things, right? Yeah. Hammer 1, the version that's in there now, has a master-slave setup. So you can designate another disk or another file system within the same computer, in fact, or on some other Hammer-running computer out on the Internet as the slave to a local master. So everything you do on the master gets copied out to the slave whatever speed you allow to copy it out. So you have a duplicate of the disk that is, assuming you have the bandwidth for it, which is not hard, a perfect copy of your existing master. And let's say your master disk completely explodes, you can promote the slave to become the master with a little bit of fiddling. Now, the problem is that there's only one master, but you can have multiple slaves with different history retention. So if you have a big, slow disk somewhere, you can fire copies of your data off to it and have it retain the long, very long-term uh, file system history. So a Hammer 2 will be an actual multi-master setup where you can have multiple masters, meaning that you can be working on the data in one location and then be dealing with it somewhere else and uh, not have... A, basically, with a slave system, it's read-only right now. So in this case, you can have multiple masters, which will be... I guess you could say the most relevant part of uh, Dragonfly's original uh, clustering goals. Yeah, and this was a goal not just of clustering of file systems, but uh, clustering entire operating systems, right? Yes. Fortunately, technology seems to have fixed that for us because it's the number of uh, cores you can buy in a system are just sort of rocketing ahead. So the attraction of having multiple machines as part of a single system image is not really not really there anymore. You don't. It's uh, I mean, not that I'm complaining about having gobs of CPU power handed to us. So storage, I guess, would be the next goal there. I think I read that for Hammer 2, Matt is looking at devoting almost all of his time exclusively to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a, a fiendishly complex problem. So I'm saying that code has hit the tree for it, but it's the barest start. And he's, I think what he officially said was... Uh, you're not going to get anything you can even mess with, really, until for six months, and then it's not going to be done until the end of the year. That being said, I think it's, you know, maybe we'll see results sooner than that. Who knows? But it's something that's fun to sit and watch, especially if you just enjoy <laughs> watching this sort of stuff, which I obviously do because of the digest. Do you have a sense of how many people are committing to Hammer 1? You know, my, my fear is that if, if Matt is devoting all of his time to Hammer 2, that uh, we may not see a lot of additional features in Hammer 1, unless, of course, there's a lot of other contributors. Well, I mean, Hammer 1 is pretty much feature complete at this point. Um, and it's been getting, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, hammered on uh, for some months now, or actually uh, years. So I would consider it feature complete. I mean, there's not going to be anything new and surprising added to it, but it is completely functional, and it's certainly gone through a lot of uh, 
I guess you could say, pretty exhaustive bug fixing because there's been people you know trying it out and trying it out. So uh, I'm certainly confident enough that I use it now on important data. What features are you using? Are you using the master-slave and shipping it across and deduplication and all that other stuff? Yes, all of them. Um, I gained back... Oh, I, I actually sat and looked at the results for this. I turned on deduplication, and I think I gained back eventually... I want to say something like 20% of my disk, which is wonderful for something that's essentially free and without any... It's basically the, you know, make my disk more efficient button. Uh, it's just very handy. And the funny thing is, at work, I was looking into storage systems for backups and so on, and it seems that uh, just saying the word deduplication to somebody selling a network-attached storage or something like that just makes them go and add an extra zero onto the end of the price of whatever they're selling. It's uh, amazing how expensive deduplication is. I can see the utility of it because it effectively gives you more disk. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a feature that in the, I don't know, I, I don't want to say real world, but in the non-open source world, just, oh my goodness, it really bumps up the price. So, But, hey, we get it for free. Now, is this live deduplication as um, blocks are being written to disk, or is it a deduplication pass that you're using? Uh, Hammer does both. I'm just using the overnight processing because I don't have... I don't have any need for the live dedupe. I don't build up enough data during a day. I remember somebody called uh, live deduplication basically, you know, fast copy because it just means that if you're copying a large amount of data around, it'll uh, use deduplication during that process. Yeah, one thing I, I've noticed about Hammer, uh, particularly in comparison to some other hot file systems in the BSD today, uh, is the low resource requirements. But deduplication often does take a tremendous amount. And, and what about on Hammer? Um, I know that people are running Hammer on systems as low as, I think, 256 meg of RAM. It feels funny to say as low as 256 meg. But I think they have to turn off reblocking for the overnight processing just because it tends to eat up most of the memory. But yeah, um, Hammer is very relaxed about its memory requirements. So... When you say other file systems, you're really you're talking about ZFS pretty much. Yeah, uh, it, that's the that's the standard of comparison. The one thing that I would like to see between the two systems is that uh, ZFS is both there for managing the disks and for handling things like RAID and so on. It's basically that there's a bunch of tools for people to use baked into ZFS for the way it works. And from what I've seen, when somebody says, "Hey, I really like this aspect of ZFS." What they're talking about is the do-what-I-mean sort of aspect of the tools, where you can say, I want a bunch of storage here, and you don't have to spend your time fiddling with, uh, you know, this disk is, lo- is connected to this one, and that disk is supposed to go here, that sort of thing. And uh, I can totally see the value of that, and I would love to see something like that for Hammer. As it is right now, the commands are pretty simple for Hammer to set up a slave master-slave configuration. For instance, I'm doing that now, not between machines, but inside a machine. My one machine here in the house actually has extra disks in it, and I have a master and slave disk within the system. And I set it up once, and it just it runs forever. So if something happens, I can I basically have an instant backup, which is nice. But since Hammer is using master-slave uh, configurations instead of a normal RAID setup, a lot of people may come to it and say, oh, I expect to do RAID configuration. Now that's... 
you should probably stick to hard or hardware setups, uh, set up on that. Yeah, so, so at this point, um, getting better driver support for various hardware read cards is probably a, a key factor for the success of Dragonfly. Yes, actually, uh, Sasha Wildner has been pulling in. Oh, it's uh, Arika, I think it is, if I'm saying it right. That company is uh, hardware support recently. Um, I think they actually, if I remember correctly, they were the ones that actually tested a driver for Dragonfly. So it's a sort of a, hey, that's nice, company recognized we exist uh, moment. But yeah, a, a recent Arika card is a very good thing to use on Dragonfly. Now, Hammer is, is obviously a, a compelling feature of Dragonfly, but are there some other unique characteristics of the operating system that, you know, if you were trying to encourage someone to use it, you might uh, add to that list of neat features? Well, it's it's a BSD, which for, you know, 0.0001% of the Earth's population, that's very important. <laughs> um, the advantage that it has is that, you know, of course, man pages make sense and are present. All the other things you associate with a BSD operating system. It's also, uh, if you have any familiarity with package source, we're using the same system as NetBSD. So it fits into that ecosystem pretty well. The big advantage for me personally is that the developer community for Dragonfly is very nice. It's a group of people that uh, if someday if I was ever traveling around Europe, I'd know there's at least two or three countries where I could stop in find somebody, and I'd be happy to buy him a drink. Um, just because they're somebody I've worked with for you know, some number of years. Never having met them, of course, but you know, that comfortable with them. Now, is there going to be any change in um, hardware or, should I say, platform support in you know, either the 3.0 release or subsequent releases? Because I think you're at, what, i386 and the uh, x64 architectures at this point? Yeah. If anybody ever gives me the chance to ever say anything about that, I'm always like, Arm, 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 arm. But I, I lack the, the skills to actually follow through on that. Um, I do think the an interesting architecture would be ARM-based processors, especially the ARM V8, I think, that is uh, coming out or is out. But switching to a new processor architecture is very difficult, and there's nobody jumping up and down to do that right now. So I don't see it happening anytime soon. I just like to talk about it as if it would. Yeah, I I always have dreamed of um, sort of a small network attached storage device running Hammer, and then oh, yes. then having a another one at a family's house, you know, sort of a a trusted backup location, and then I could just ship the file systems over SSH between the two. But you know, asking a, a family member to run a a big you know desktop computer at their own cost of $30 a month in electricity is nothing I'd, I'd like to do, but if it was a small arm box, that would be a little easier sell. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is this is a product that is dying to happen, would be the equivalent of uh, FreeNAS using a hammer file system. I mean, it would be a different approach because of the, the disk cloning mechanism, but uh, I think it would totally work. It's there for somebody to hop on. So, you know, there's there's the features that we have, um, and then, obviously, there's the features that are coming, like Hammer 2. In your discussions and, and reading of the mailing lists, are there some planned or upcoming features that you're really excited about? Well, the multi-master aspect of uh, Hammer 2 is very interesting. It'll be a big thing to be able to say you can plop your data down one place and deal with it wherever. Um, I actually have a use case for that at work where I have 
places that need to see the same data, but they are physically very far away from each other and don't have a good enough network link to throw data back and forth easily. So um, that sort of multi-master aspect would be wonderful. So I, I have all sorts of reasons to look for it. The other nice thing is that pretty much everything that's in Hammer 1 is going to come forth to Hammer 2, for instance, deduplication. The nice thing is that it's going to be more precise, so you can do it, deduplication, I mean, on uh, just a part of a, a file system. And I think there's going to be quota support, too, which is also a, a plus. I have to go back and look through the notes to find out. But there are actually release notes for Hammer 2 out there. I think I linked to them on the Digest within the last couple of days. That talks a bit about the technical details of what's being worked on, but it also, in all of there, gives a list of features of what's going to be worked on. And over the past couple of years, have you had a sense that the developer community is healthy and growing and, and you know, able to support a lot of these features that people are planning to implement? I think we've remained about, uh, static in terms of total developer count. There's always a little bit of, you know, somebody you know, falls out for a bit, comes back, that sort of thing. That's something I've, I've wondered about for a while. Um, writing your own operating system is not, it's not really the hot thing it was you know, maybe 10 years ago. So I wonder about how much of the effort of people that would have normally said, hey, I, I'm going to go work on an operating system, have turned into people that say, hey, I'm going to go write my own uh, uh, application for Android or iOS or something like that. Because, uh, I mean, there's still a lot of development of operating systems that aren't Windows, but they tend to be corporate-sponsored uh, at this point, startlingly so. I mean, what were the numbers for Linux? Something, um, I'm pulling this out of my butt. 80% or something like that was coming from people paid by other companies to work on the Linux kernel or something like that. Not that that's necessarily bad, but it's uh, the idea of open source software used to be sort of a, hey, everybody just contributes to it, and everybody means people working in their spare time. And nowadays it seems to be, hey, companies that derive a financial advantage contribute to it by paying people to work on it so it's not their spare time. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it certainly helps everybody out. But I suppose if you've been working with these with computers for more than, oh, I don't know, 10 years, you end up with this sort of memory of how things used to be as a sort of a hobbyist thing. When I linked to stuff on the Digest for my lazy reading roundups, I uh, sometimes I'll find something where it's just a collection of web pages somebody threw up there on some esoteric topic and has that sort of feel of, you know, this is what the Internet really works out. You know, there'll be one person out there who has a very tight interest in something very obscure, and they document everything they look at about it. And then you get to read about it. You don't see that as much anymore. You get sort of a slick, here's how polished everything is, reaction. Like if you go to, oh, geez, um, let's say the tool Git. If you go to the website for Git, <clears throat> The website for Git is very, you know, hey, here's how you get started, here's what our system is. And that's not necessarily bad, but think back to, say, uh, 2002 or something like that. If there's a web page for Git, what would it look like? It would probably be, you know, a title, here's Git, here's a tarball to download, uh, get cracking. You know, and it's funny to see that, that difference nowadays in the open source world, that it's either things are polished and they have a commercial sponsor, or they 
finale pretty much just don't exist. This is an, a totally unscientific thing, and I'm sure there's somebody out there who's slamming their headphones down right now saying, there are plenty of community-driven tools out there, darn it. But uh, I suppose I'm just, I'm just trying to be nostalgic before my time. And, you know, I, I think the corporate sponsorship and funding and everything else is an important aspect of any, any project. Oh, yeah. And, I, I don't want to sound like I'm a, I'm a crotchety person saying corporations are evil and how dare anybody accept their money. I, I think it's, if anything, it's, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And we've all benefited from the higher level of polish and just the additional resources for people. I certainly wouldn't want to begrudge anybody uh, getting to spend their day being paid to work on open source stuff. I mean, that's that's a wonderful thing to have. And what does Dragonfly BSD have as far as um, you know funding and infrastructure and everything else? And are there things that people can do to help bolster that? <laughs> Someday I'll get my acting gear and uh, actually create a Dragonfly nonprofit. That's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, so that there's an actual legal entity to deal with. Um, there isn't one, however. At this point in time, the project is entirely volunteer at this point, which is good and bad. Um, I think we've come a long way for being an all-volunteer project, but at the same time, I do uh, wish we had an organization, for instance, to assign copyright to. That would be handy. At, at this point, where does all the copyright go? Just to the developer that commits the code or to Matt? Um, I think I, I have to go back and look at the policy. I, I mean, it's not an official policy. It's people will write in, you know, copyright the year dragonfly bsd project but there isn't technically a dragonfly bsd project i have the disadvantage of not being a lawyer so i don't know exactly how bad that is <laughs> yeah. hopefully not horribly so yeah now what about build farms and and the whole distribution is is this happening you know out of somebody's basement or a <laughs> bunch of basements or, or you know what's the project looking like under the hood oh it's a bunch of basements um dragonflybsd.org is actually several machines sitting at Matt Dillon's house. But there are other machines out there. There's several people that have donated uh, machine space for me to do bulk builds of package source on um, very kindly. So, uh, for instance, the, there's a set of packages for i386 and 64-bit uh, Dragonfly uh, already built and ready for download for the 3.0 release that I built on other systems that people said, here, I'll give you space to work on. There's a number of people that run tinderboxes and setups so they can see problems as they come along. But yeah, it's all, it's all people's basements. We don't have any uh, commercial entities running it as donated space or anything. Again, that's an aspect of there's no nonprofit to uh, tack it back to, unfortunately. I believe you're on a distributed version control system. I think maybe a year or two ago there was a, a, a survey and a switch to something. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah. It's uh, Git is being used which has been very successful. If you are on a Dragonfly system and you go into your user directory and type make, you'll actually see a list of commands for downloading you know, the, the base files for package source or the source for Dragonfly, and those are all pulling from Git repositories. We actually have a conversion process running of, the, of package source that's in CVS, uh, converting it to Git just to make it a little quicker to download and preserving history going right now. Um, I think Jörg Sonnenberger is working on a, a Git feed of package source, but I don't know if it's official yet. I don't know if we're pulling from that yet. But in any case, yes, we have switched over to Git, and it has been quite successful. I've noticed Git is difficult to wrap your head around at first, but once you get used to it, it has some really powerful 
commands to it. It works very quickly, which is very nice. Now, for people who might be interested in trying Dragonfly, should they wait a week for 3.0? Is there a sense of, of how long? Or, or just go ahead and download the current 2.10 uh, you know, release because 3 might not be coming out for a while? Well, that's hard to say. There is, there is right now seven blocking bugs marked down for the 3.0 release. There's actually there's a catch-all bug on uh, the bug tracker for it. Now, how quickly those will get tracked down depends on how quickly people look at them. Um, however, there are nightly builds of Dragonfly done, so if you really wanted an up-to-date version, you can get one right now. There is uh, if you go to if you go to the site, there's links for it. But every night, or nearly every night, depending on how things are going, there is a fresh version of Dragonfly to download and try. There are also release candidates. I have builds of 3.0 on the on the it'll be on the mirrors for Dragonfly that you can download and try now, which I would certainly appreciate because I'd like to hear about any problems now. In a in a foolhardy moment, I went and volunteered myself to be the release manager for 3.0, so um, I'm the one that has to sit and watch for those bug reports. So I'd certainly appreciate people running it and giving it a try. It's a live CD, so plopping it into your computer and just booting up the CD will get you to a command line and you'll be able to tell whether it works or whether it doesn't. And if it's a doesn't, I'd, I'd certainly like to know. And the live CD includes a graphical environment too, doesn't it? Yes. Um, I don't have one of those built for the 3.0 release yet, just because it takes longer. But uh, but yeah, there are uh, x.org uh, desktops running, I want to say uh, FVWM as a desktop environment on the most recent release. There's a 2.10 release of Dragonfly using that. Um, that's available for download right now. Great. So uh, test it out, I guess, is our recommendation to folks. Submit bug reports. Are there any other things that the project is looking for from people? Mm, well, testing and running is always, is always good. The uh, Google Summer of Code is, has been announced again, and Dragonfly has participated for the past four years. I think it's four years now. And I'm certainly looking to uh, get us in there again. So for anyone who's a college student and uh, uh, wants a project to tackle, Dragonfly will hopefully be participating in that. So that'll be an option for people hopefully this summer. Great. Well, any other things you wanted to let us know about before before we move on with our days? (laughs) Uh, Please test and let me know what happens. Or even more specifically, uh, file a bug report at bugs.dragonflybsd.org and let everybody know what's going on. All right. Well, you know, thank you for all your work, not only on Dragonfly, but also the Digest. It's, it's one of my uh, tabs that always open. So, uh, you know, Good. thank you for that. And, uh, yeah, have a, have a great day. And I look forward to trying the 3.0, 3.0 release. Well, thank you. I hope everything works perfectly. Right. <laughs> I'll blame you if it doesn't, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> thank you. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 212.